1: This is the New Books and Food podcast. It's Alan Salkin. I'm talking to Andrew Friedman, author of Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. We're doing this interview on a beautiful front deck on a sunny day in Silver Lake, which is part of Los Angeles. There's some birds chirping. There's some freeway noise. But luckily, my uh, very good recording device should um, make this sound good. Hi, Andrew. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be warm, and I'm happy to be in the sunshine. Yes. So, all right. The book started out, it was supposed to be an oral history. True. It kind of got away from you. What, how did this book happen? Uh, you, you've also, you've written a lot of, uh, you've co-written cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And, and memoirs. And memoirs. Mm-hmm. This seems to be just a complete, and you can, as you read it, you just feel the labor of love that it is. Thank you. Of, this sort of, um, I'm really enjoying as I'm plowing through it and, um, or it's plowing through me really. <laughs> huh. Um, and there's, and I have a lot of questions about, you know, things that have come up because there's so many of these like narratives about, you know, people are always telling stories about the old days, you know, uh, chefs are the new rock stars or whatever. Yeah. So, um, look, go ahead. Tell me how the book came to be and, and why it came to be in this form.
0: So, well, how it came to be is uh, there's some books that you're probably familiar with that some people listening might be familiar with, but books that I've always loved. Um, One of them is um, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which is about the American film directors of the 70s and how the old Hollywood became new Hollywood. There was a book called Please Kill Me, which is the uh, oral history of punk rock. There is a book called Live from New York, which is an oral history of Saturday Night Live. And even the first one I mentioned, some people remember that book as oral history, but it's not oral history. It's just very quote heavy. And Peter Biskin, who wrote it, did tons of interviews. But all of those books are about how Funny. it's. I, I read
1: like every one of those books. Yeah. I read as i was writing from scratch also.
0: oh that's like, so funny yeah network. your book about the food network yeah, is totally okay so you and i are informed. we're bonding yeah we're bonding <laughs> so if this was a date it would be a good first date uh but um you know those are all stories of how a medium changed against the backdrop of the 70s right and I've always been much more interested in chefs and food. I always say I'm not a food writer. I'm a chef writer. I'm really not. I love food. I love going to restaurants. I I don't make food pilgrimages. I don't go. I live in New York. I've never gone to Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, you know, to get Italian, to get a mozzarella. I I would go if somebody were taking me, but it's not, you know, on my bucket list. But I'm fascinated by chefs. That's what I see is what I do. And... um, because of that point of view, I started to wonder where's the book that would go on the shelf with those other ones I just mentioned about chefs, right? Because it's the exact same time frame and I believe a lot of the sort of cultural and societal forces that change those other mediums are the same ones that drove young Americans into the kitchen in a way that had never right, happened right, before, uh, gave them the freedom to start screwing around with food and cooking what they felt like instead of out of, you know, the French classic playbook, the Escafier playbook, and um, that was the idea for
1: it. The Uh, ferment was, and you see this in the start of the book, the ferment is like the 60s counterculture.
0: Counterculture, the war protests, you know, the Vietnam War protest movement. The Vietnam War itself, you know, I had never even thought of this. But, you know, a number of people said to me, men, because women weren't being drafted at the time, you know, you got your draft number and it forced you at age 17 to think about your mortality. And you know, did you really want to go be an insurance salesman? You know, mm. and and so that was actually a factor, uh, even for people who never got called up. Um, I thought you were about to go a totally different direction. I thought you were, we're about to say it
1: exposed people to Vietnamese food.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Something well, equally at least at least as profound. Yeah. But um, you know, there were the changes that were happening in music. Um, You know, somebody, I forget who it was, said to me, you know, you can only listen to Jimi Hendrix so long and still make, you know, cassoulet, Mm. (laughs) you know. So those were the factors. Originally, it was going to be an oral history just because I thought um, I wasn't there. And the most reliable thing I could do would be to confine it to the voices of these people. Um, Ultimately, that proved undoable. Um, it, It took up too much real estate to get from point A to point B to point C just in quotes. I needed the ability to fast forward with a paragraph that could move you ahead or convey a lot of uh, uh, transitional stuff quickly. Um, Certain people aren't with us any longer. Certain people wouldn't give me an interview, not many, but a few. And and there were also, I have to say, for various reasons, to be honest, drugs are one of them, but another one is just the gap of time since all this happened. Um, and age was some people I interviewed. Memories were imperfect. So people would tell me things that in doing some reading I would realize was were just factually wrong. So then I ended up buying almost 40 books to do research from. Um, I have a whole carton yeah. of uh, articles that I had pulled. Um, so the research became enormous. And, and I actually ended up writing a narrative book, which was never my intention. but. I don't feel bad about it. I'm very happy with it.
1: It reads nicely. Thank you. Thank you. So, okay, let's start on the the dedication page. Mm. We already started. Mm. So who are these people? In loving memory, Teresa Teresa Friedman and Joan Brayden Price. Yeah, Brayden Price. Braden Price, who encouraged me in all things great and small. Yeah,
0: well, you're nice to bring that up. Uh, Teresa Friedman was my paternal grandmother who lived to 98 who was alive when I sold the book, uh, who was really happy for me, uh, passed away while I was writing it. And um, uh, Joan Braden Price is, was my mother-in-law who just loved everything I did and we had an amazing relationship. She was very much kind of of this time. She was a hippie, um, came from a very well-off family. Her father had been the president of an Ivy League university. Um, but there's pictures of her and her husband and my wife as a child driving cross-country in, like, a VW van, you know, with their clothes drying on a line tied wow. between two trees. Yeah. And um, and neither of them lived to see the book, but they were just huge cheerleaders of mine. And then the other person there, well, you can read it. Well, that's how, really how we got to know each other.
1: Yeah. It was Josh Ozersky, yeah. who, who loves chefs and whose last meal came much too soon. Josh passed away what three years ago yeah
0: about um
1: at during sort of the james beard awards weekend in chicago yeah if you don't know him look him up he uh by the end of his life which he was probably in his early 40s
0: no late uh i i turned 50 this year and josh and i were born two months apart okay so So he was late 40s uh he was writing
1: for esquire and he you know
0: he is uh there's Well, you tell me. I mean, why why is he here? Well, Josh was a real, um, first of all, friend, but also, um, you know, just kind of a hero to me. I mean, you knew him too. He was an amazing, brilliant food writer. Um, You know, tragically, during the Beard Awards a couple years ago, he was in his hotel room and had an epileptic seizure and and drowned in the shower. Um, And uh, nobody obviously saw that coming. Um, And he was... First of all, somebody I just really admired as a writer. I should yeah. say, as his wife would be quick to point out, he definitely had his detractors. He was a very unfiltered person and personality. But he was fearless. He was fearless. In
1: writing especially, he
0: was fearless. He was fearless in his writing. But he was also brilliant. You know, Josh, there are sentences he wrote. I consider myself a craftsperson. I work really hard at the craft of writing, and I think I've gotten pretty good at it. I think I'm a great interviewer. That's my strength. Josh is one of these people I look at, and I look at sentences that he wrote, and I say, I could sit there for a week, I wouldn't write that sentence. You know, he just had the, uh, just touched by whatever power you believe in, and was just hugely supportive, and it kind of kills me a little, because he kept asking to read this as I was working on it, and I wouldn't let him. I was too insecure about it, and I wish I had. I really wish I had.
1: Okay, so what the book basically is, is a a trip from roughly the mid-1960s until about the early
0: 1990s. Yeah, it ends in 93 for all intents and purposes. Which is funny
1: because my book basically picks up in ninety.
0: That's correct, yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's all, and it's almost like this is, and I talk about this when I'm interviewed with my book, which is like what Food Network did was take this sort of art form which had evolved and was sort of peaking in the places that you mostly cover the Bay Area, LA, New York, a few other cities. Yeah. And then Food Network sees okay, this is this great now American art form that's kind of formed and gelled. And then they blow it up, and now we live in the world we live in where you yes. can get good food on the side of the highway. Correct. Um, and uh, just like I, as I would say, like with rock and roll. It took radio and television mm-hmm. to take this kind of thing that had started in the blue in the uh, you know Mississippi Delta and to yeah. blow that out. Tech- yeah, technological changes were important for for the media angle of it. Uh uh-huh. But you're really talking about the evolution of the art form of, of the chef as artist in a lot a lot of ways.
0: In a lot of ways, although a lot of chefs I know, I don't know if you've had this conversation. I've had it a lot they can recently. They themselves because they're going to say, "I'm yeah. not an artist; I'm just a cook." Is that what you Not, say? I'm just a cook. They okay. believe that the uh, this is something that's come up a lot in my own podcast in the last uh, couple of months. But what 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 a number of chefs have said to me is that f- food, you know, if, you know, art does certain things like evokes a mood or an emotion, and you know, food. First and foremost, should be delicious. I think for people who have their head screwed yes. on right. Yes. So, you can get a little, as Alex Stupak said to me once, you can go off the deep end. You don't want food that evokes like you know misery or you know dismay. The way art can. You know, there's a there's a there's a. You might there's but an not objective most of, not most of the time. There is an objective that uh, takes precedence over. Has that other stuff has to, has to taste, taste good. good and yeah. there. So their feeling is uh, what a lot of people have said to me is that the fact that you eat it, that you, you know, it interacts with your taste buds, you take it into your body, makes it different from art. But that's, that's a side point. It's a tangent. Do we want to yeah. go there? I don't really have a horse. Let's in, not go there I don't right have a, now. I don't have a dog let's, in that let's race. Let's talk about your book. So, um, but to me, what's funny about what you just said, and it's, it is right. You know, my, your you know, your book, it's right at the end of my book, and I do talk about the beginnings of it, yeah. barely. You end um, your book right there. Right yeah. there. But, um, you know, there's this nexus, cool. this moment, um, and I don't think it's a huge spoiler, but, you know, my, my book largely ends at Blue Ribbon in a lot of ways. Yeah. And Blue Ribbon was yeah. the seminal after-hours chef hangout. Uh, it was uh, it opened in 1992, and in the 90s, if you Manhattan. were in New York, in lower Manhattan, in Soho, every chef in Manhattan who was looking to go out, well, most of them went, you just went to Blue Ribbon. And people need to remember, this was a time before cell phones. You know, you couldn't call or text your three best buddies. Everybody just went to Blue Ribbon. And you'd go there and it was like Bobby Flay and Daniel Balud and Jean George and all their crews and the Gotham Gang and Mario Batali. I mean, that's who was there. and. What's so fascinating to me is, I think that those people all thought that they were going to spend the rest of their lives like that, right? But the Food Network, which I believe is largely responsible, we are in we're outside. Those Those are are those are preschool. Those are school school children. Everything's okay. But (laughs) um, uh, I think they thought they were going to spend the rest of their lives like that. All those people at that moment in time had one restaurant. They'd all just come from cooking on the line. And within a matter of months for some of them, they were on television. They had multiple restaurants in different cities. That's more a matter of years. They were starting to be, you know, books, product lines, starting to be pulled in a lot of different directions. So I think, you know, they thought that was the beginning of something. In fact, I believe it was the end of this 20-year period. Mm. That's what I really believe it was. And I don't think anybody quite realized that. So that is... You know, I, I'm always, I thought about it so much, and I really do believe people need to accept that things change. This is how you led yeah. into the question. Um, but I do think it is inevitable with all these different forms, art forms, or whatever you want to call it that you do there's all these stories over the years of you know you mentioned rock and roll like this thing that starts off very pure the word i always use is pure there's a purity right. people get into it just for the love of it they don't they're not getting into it for the money for the fame and then it becomes this thing it starts to draw people who are in it for that you know and then you end up with people who are getting media trained while they're matriculating at the culinary institute right the
1: airplane becomes starship
0: yeah yeah and it it that is the nature of things. I've always thought one of the demarcation lines, by the way, <clears throat> is when people start to have handlers. Yeah. When well, there starts what, to be a yeah. barrier between the people yes. and the people covering them. If you talk to like a Ruth Rice, if you talk to yeah. a Coleman Andrews, they were, they were just all part of this food thing with these chefs. There was no church and state notion. Yes. Uh, there was no dividing line. They all traveled together. Yeah. It was this really romantic time, you know, it was amazing. I'm very jealous of those writers.
1: Yeah, it's true. You know. I mean, even sports writing has become, That's... it used to be like that. And...
0: Now, why did you say that? Because I actually have, a, there's a very specific reason I bring that Go up. Go ahead. Well, so I, I've known, a t- I know a tennis writer who used to cover a tournament down in Florida, and he at least once shared a condo with Jimmy Connors. Right. Right? And I must have been, oh boy, Jimmy and, was famous. <laughs> for, uh, and... Um, uh, you know, I've I've heard stories about baseball journalists back in the day who would go down to spring training in Florida, and at the end of the day, they'd be hanging out at the motel pool yeah. with the athletes sitting on Chez lounges, drinking beer, right. and and the and the and the reporters just happen to have a notebook, and they would just sit there and do interviews. You know, and it, the, the issue, but that's unimaginable
1: now. It, well, it's it's also unimaginable because. It's part. I don't want to say it's the reporter's fault too. Yeah. But like, if you were sitting there and a guy got injured the next day, and you'd been drinking with him the night before, what are you supposed to do? Not write about it? I mean, maybe yes. Maybe we're not. There was there was a almost like certain things just did not end up in the paper. It was understood. Mm. And I don't think now any. It's not understood. It's like whatever you can get,
0: you print. Yes. Or, yeah. Publish. Well, not even that. I mean, everyone's got a cam of, video camera in their pocket, too. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of all this, to, yeah. to, to Blue
1: Ribbon, the most famous kind of, there was a big article in the New York Observer in the early 90s, mm-hmm. which talked about Batali holding mm-hmm. court, and that's really what led to Jonathan Lynn yep. going down and, and and Batali ending up on the Food Network. Yeah. Now, you also talk in the book, I think it's Pointer, Pointer, that the, the Point. chef... Who died at like 58 and yeah. his legend. And I wish I could find the passage, but it's like everyone tells these beloved stories of how he used to enjoy champagne. Yeah, the or, morning
0: champagne ritual. Right. Yeah. Well, and he was, very famously, Paul Bocuse was his apprentice. Yeah. And there was this morning champagne ritual that people have, yeah. And everyone's, was, oh, wasn't it great? And yeah. It like, and
1: he died at 58. Yes. You know. Yeah. Um, so, so... Especially back to Batali, you know, yeah. it's where, right now where we're sitting, you know, Batali has admitted that at least some of what was in the New York Times expose about his what's now called sexual misconduct, et yeah. cetera, is true. Yeah. He's pretty much admitted that. He yeah. said his behavior was bad or whatever yeah. the word was. Um, Is he coming back? Oof. That's a big question. And maybe beyond what? But it's just you know you read about Batali and he's in this book and he's a great talker we you know he's a great guy a fun guy to be around at times I was not with him in the yeah the room you know yeah was... I
0: was never there in the heyday of right. Blue Ribbon I've been there since I or, was actually or in the back room with him at the uh, Spotted Pig no. I mean, I've spent a lot, you know, I've collaborated with so many people. I've been in so many kitchens. I've never seen any of this stuff. I When these when the John Besh story broke, which broke before the Mario story broke, right. I mean, I, I've said this to a million people. I think this moment, the reckoning or the Me Too moment, whatever you want to call it, I think this moment is much more shocking to well-behaved men than it is to women. No woman I know is surprised. Oh, that's a good point. No woman I know is surprised. Now that it's out, they're all like, oh yeah, this stuff goes on left and right, we all, you know. Guys are shocked. I think this is an education for guys. Interesting. I really do. Mario, I've known. We have very good mutual friends. Um, he's always been very nice to me. He gave me two interviews for the book. Um, I've always been able to get a reservation through his assistant. Yeah. He's not an intimate of mine. We don't hang. We never hung hard, out. It was hard for me to chase him down for an interview. Oh, it took was it? Quite a while. But he, I mean, I'm older than you. I was grandfathered in. But he, um, you know. Is he coming back? I mean, if I'm sitting here trying to be a journalist and just take a, a dispassionate view of it, I don't see how. I mean, I don't. I don't. Um, I, I, I look at all of these uh, stories and all these different industries, and um, the only person I could see maybe coming back, um, although it was such just completely gross and bizarre behavior— is I could imagine Louis C.K. C.K. because yeah. he didn't... Yeah. Physic put him, he didn't put his hands on anybody. Yeah. Except himself. But it's... It, I it, mean, it's... The whole thing is so bizarre. Um, but isn't there something
1: about... Because it's funny you say that the handlers were chefs and yeah. stuff. And I still do feel like you're always at these... it's often so many funny moments. Like, you'll go to the... I don't know if you are a regular at the Aspen Classic. No, I've only been once. But... Or wherever these food festivals that you go to, and it's like, you know, you end up in these after-hours parties with the chefs. I mean, the chefs aren't athletes. That you know, no. we kind of expect them to have big, weird appetites. Yeah. Not necessarily what you know, they're Batali or Bechir are accused of doing, but um, I don't know. Sometimes I'm just like, wait, am I supposed to be
0: dancing here with these sources of mine? Mm. I don't well. Know. It depends. I mean, I'll be completely honest. I put it in my author's note for the book. I mean, there's a lot of people in this book who are Your very friends. close friends of yeah. mine and there's a lot and many more who are acquaintances. So on the one hand, you know, that's why I was able to get all these interviews. You yes. know, I mean, it took forever to get Wolfgang Puck. I eventually Jonathan Waxman called him for me. Yeah. I mean, that's how I got Wolfgang.
1: Um, no, I got, you him. know, I got him because I went to a food festival in Las Vegas and he was there. Able, yeah, he was there, and I was able to get in a taxi with him. There you go. And basically, interviewed him on the taxi ride across
0: yeah. The town. Yeah. Well, I don't want to mispronounce his name. Patrick Kuh, K-U-H, who wrote Last Days of Oak Cuisine. In that book, he talks about he couldn't get to him through the corporate machinery, yes. and he just went to one of the restaurants one night, right. and he was there, and he just sat down and gave him an interview. Right. I mean, I don't know how you found him. I found oh, him well, to he's be wonderful. We spent three hours together. He let me ask, for a guy who's as, has as much at stake as him. He let me ask him everything he wasn't bothered offended guarded it was amazing he is he is it's almost like constitutional in his part I know he's, he's just his
1: feet are on the ground yeah. his eyes are on the plate in front of yeah. him. he I know
0: he was it's a, he was a great 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 interview I think he was the last big one I got I mean I already had the chapter on him drafted
1: well what people don't know about him is, or I don't think is that the now ex-wife Barbara Lazov Laz- Laz- Lazaroff, was really hugely important in oh, the huge. Uh, building of that business.
0: Huge. Well, she that. designed all those restaurants. Yeah. You know, yeah. how much of a role, depends who you talk to, how much of a role she played in, in the making of him. Um, there are a lot of people who were around in the early days who will tell you that she made him yeah. who he is. There are people like Ruth <laughs> who point out that Wolfgang is an absolute genius, that eventually he would have gotten there, but that she was sort of like, um, you know, accelerator, you know, she, she was like MSG, you know, she, she sped it up like exponentially. Um, uh, He does not like that impression that's out there, but I will tell you, it is held by very many people, Yeah, very many people. But I have to say about Wolfgang, I call it the Spielberg factor, not in the book, but you know, the guy's a genius culinarily and I think partially because he's in LA and I think partially because he's so successful he's under I actually think if people will find this an odd comment he's undervalued as a talent I think he's seen as you know one of the very first few celebrity chefs and great concept guy this is the guy who trained in three star Michelin restaurants right and came here and you know, and he's he's and the just
1: story you tell in the book. You have him sort of cowering and hiding out in the basement of a restaurant
0: in Vienna, wasn't he? No, it was in France. He had gotten fired right. uh, from a job. Uh, he screwed. He he let the, he was uh, he had let them run out of potatoes, and the chef fired him, and he didn't know what to do. He hated his stepfather. He didn't want to go home. And it's for people who might remember a certain Seinfeld episode where George Costanza just goes back to work the next day, pretends he wasn't fired. Right. right. Wolfgang goes back to work in the cellar. So it was the, a floor down from the kitchen. And the guy to whom he reported basically kept him there secretly because he couldn't handle all the work that, you know, he inherited from Wolf. And uh, and that went on until the chef found him and the chef kicked him out again and then he went to a sister restaurant of that, of that hotel's restaurant. But um, no, he, I, I wanna get back to your question though about uh, you know, dancing with our sources, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It, I think it's a very tricky issue in the food business um, because on the one hand, you know, we hear about people talk about DC all the time, Washington DC and the coziness between journalists and, and politicians, right? But there's real things at stake in DC, right? Now we're covering chefs and restaurants and food Okay, the stakes aren't as high, but I think it's, it is really important to stay in a place where you can be honest and not play favorites, um, and I think everyone has their own barometer about that. I mean, there were things in this book that it pained me to put in there. Like what? Well, you know, there's some stories about the way Le Cirque uh, was overwhelmed in the kitchen, on when Alan Sayak was the chef. And there were a lot of shortcuts taken and it was very stressful and there was a lot of turnover. And I described that stuff in the book. And you know, when when Balud came in, he doubled the kitchen staff and got a lot of acclaim. Um when Sayak was there, they were anyone will tell you the kitchen was too small, they they didn't have enough people, and it led to a lot of stuff. And um which is described in the book. Now I've known Alan Sayak for twenty years and He's always been a sweetheart to me. You know, he used to periodically invite me to lunch at the French Culinary Institute when they had. Well, first of all, when it was the French Culinary Institute, but when they had the restaurant downstairs. And, um, you know, that was a moment where I was like, look, I'm writing this book. Um, There were reasons to have those stories in in there. Uh, I didn't just consider it gossip. Uh, Yeah. And and because to me, it was showing, you know, the friend, the the tri-state cooks, the people who grew up in cooking in French restaurants, American kids in New York City, had such reverence for the French. And when they would see that even these guys could be overwhelmed, you know, this could go on in a kitchen, that humanized these people who were almost deities to them. So I felt like it had a reason to be there, Um, but that was hard for me, you know, that was hard for me. There's some... I think Barry Wine comes off in this book as a genius. Barry and I are friends, you know, and there's some detractors. Um, and I put very specific quotes in the book from people who st- either trailed there, like when they thought they might take a job there, and were unimpressed. Right? I'm sure he didn't love seeing that, but I felt like I had to be balanced. When you start, when you hear enough things like that from five different people, uh, that's where I think you have to go. Okay, you know what? We're friends, but I, 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 I got to be. You know, I can't write a. I can't sugarcoat.
1: Many people. It, fewer people. Most people don't understand and really accept the role of the journalist. And, and when it really comes down to it, respect that sometimes you do have to just write some things that people you know well aren't going to like. Yeah. I mean, there's a role that we play that is sort of always going to be the outsider you know, looking in. And, and I, I've struggled with like, I really like that these chefs like me. I know I like going into their restaurants yeah. and having them, you know, oh, you know, do me yeah. up and yeah. send me an extra plate of whatever. Yeah. Um, sure. But then, you know, and, and listen, I'm not right now writing any restaurant criticism, but um, ultimately you have to understand that at some point I may write something and that person's going to hate me forever. And I'm always aware of that. Yeah. that. This person may read something I write and just never talk to me again. And mm-hmm. that happened. For most usually, it's from people I don't expect. That has happened to you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like Tyler Florence yeah. in the Food Network book. It was like it was harmless. Yeah. He like kissed the marketing woman on the lips once. You know. Yeah. And his and I think his wife got pissed at him and he yeah. did not talk to me anymore. Yeah. And it's like really I didn't write about all the other things I heard about you. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, the other the flip side on my book, I have to say is. I wasn't there for this these events. I was By the alive. Way, I don't
1: even know that that's what he doesn't like. I don't know what he does like. <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> Could be he just it doesn't like that you. He took 000, 000 from Applebee's. Everyone, no, not everyone likes me. <laughs> so, 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 um, you know. But the other thing with this book is I interviewed about two hundred and ten people. Yeah. Now, uh, I wasn't around back in the day, right? right I was right. alive, but I wasn't around this industry. And it's always part of this is a function of my brain and and being a little OCD and having this compulsion of, I want to get it right. And I feel like to do that, I need to talk to enough people that I really feel like I have a radar, right? And, or a Geiger, an internal like Geiger counter. And so I talked to a million people. Now, these people gave me time. Some of them went out of their way to give me time. Some of them gave me a lot of time. Some of them connected me with other people. A couple of them, I showed up and they, they made lunch for me. I mean, this is the sweetest things. And some of those people aren't even named. Right. Right. And, so those people might be mad at me, you right, know, right. um, I sent an email out to everyone who gave me an interview. My publisher was kind enough to gift everyone a book. <clears throat> I came in and signed 210 books and I brought, I got everyone's wow. address. Wow. And in the email I sent soliciting addresses, I said, Ooh. um, you know, I also want to just tell you guys, uh, it's not my editor. It's me. Wow. I had to make some hard decisions. You're not all in the book and I, your, your perspectives were incredibly useful, and I hope you can understand and I'm going to try to find ways to use your interviews and articles and on my website and there was actually one person I will not name them who wrote me and said here's my address only if I'm in the book like they only wanted the book if they were in the book yeah so I don't know how many of those people are angry at me but I was willing to take that hit because I did believe that I, I tried. I did. I tried to write it. Have a glossary where I named everyone I had it named. I I tried to periodically just insert a few paragraphs where I'd go through a list of people. And honestly, yes. they were. I, I I have no objectivity, but I feel like this book moves. Yes. And I feel I felt like those paragraphs were just roadblocks. Like yeah. I was doing it to make. Some people feel good to assuage my own guilt, I know. but that it was narratively irresponsible. I've cut people out of New York Times articles at the last yeah. minute, and you just know, like,
1: they're never gonna, that's their one chance ever that right. they're ever going to be in the New York Times. Yeah, you just you owe it to the other the people reading the. the it's story.
0: hard, and this—I mean, I'll be honest. How many more people are going to how, how many more people are going to get a crack at a book like this about this generation? Yes. I mean. Yes. Well, so um, that there was a huge weight on me. You know, I have, yes. for example, we're in L.A. There was a guy named Michael Roberts who was the chef of a restaurant called Trump's, same time as Spago, no relation to our president. And he was beloved. OK. There I did a piece for my blog. I have a blog called Tokeland. I wrote a piece about Michael Roberts where I took the file of research I had and I wrote a profile of Michael Roberts. and I put it there and I sent it to like Ruth Reichel and Jonathan Waxman and people who knew him. And. It killed me that that's not in the book, but yeah. I didn't have a place where it naturally fit. Yeah. And and that's it. I mean, well, I can't. Well, it's nice
1: that you memorialized it. I'm sitting on hours and hours and hours of, hundreds of hours of, of interviews from of my book, and I, yeah. I wish I could figure out something to do with them all. Yeah. Well, um, hold on to it. I know, I know. I'm going to yeah. give it to the NYU library. It's
0: that's nice so funny you said that. At some point, I'm, I'm looking for someone to leave my transcripts to. Yeah.
1: Yeah we should create the
0: Friedman Salt. There you go. We should.
1: um, And listen, most importantly, on page 449, you put my book in the bibliography. Thank you. That's right.
0: That was important. That was the linchpin of the whole book. (laughs) Once I knew where to put that, it all
1: fell into place. Um, But talking about, I don't know, just, I want to talk about Chez Panisse for a second. Yeah. Inevitably. Right. Um, And I think you start off kind of ragging on them a little bit. Like you're you like, I know I have to talk about Chez Panisse. Everyone thinks yeah this is where it all starts. Yeah. And you're kind of like there's this like trepidation as you kind of get into it. Mm-hmm. And then I think what inevitably happens is the next thing is eight pages later, I've read a wonderful history of Chez Panisse with like with the Alice
0: interview great yeah.
1: stories being told because you you like everybody else you do kind of have to fall in love with the
0: story and, and with it um, here's what I think is the fascinating thing about Chez Panisse I'm going to say a bunch of stuff you and I both know and I don't many people listening might know it largely because of Jeremiah Tower's campaign over the last few years um, here's the thing with Chez Panisse Chez Panisse is indisputably a very important restaurant Okay, both uh, for what it is and was and will be for a while yet, both for Alice's role in it. I don't even have to say her last name. (laughs) Um, And also for all of the people who started there, you know, who trained there. Okay, so there's that. Jonathan Waxman included. Yeah, but I mean, he's, I mean, tip of the iceberg. He was never even the chef, you know, but Mark Miller. uh, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Paul Bertoli, and, I mean, all these people. So... Uh, And people who spent 10 minutes there who are now really important. Okay, so there's that. However, this notion that American cuisine began at Chez Panisse, modern American cuisine, which I think is the, you know, anyone I told I was writing this book, oh, Chez Panisse is going to be in there? This exaggeration of reality is so... Fascinating to me, it is. I was talking to someone the other day who is in the book. They happen to be coming through New York. We had a coffee, and um, he said, "Yep, that's the machine they've built." You know, and it is amazing. It is amazing. So I think there's this weird seesaw thing that happens in the food world, which is people feel the need to qualify it, then people feel the need to take it down, and then people feel immediately the need to course correct because it's not like it didn't matter. It mattered a ton but it wasn't the be-all and end-all. That's what I think... And there is this whole shadow population that I referred to in the book of people who... You've, you've talked to these people. They kind of privately growls, you know, oh, you know, it wasn't just them. It wasn't... You know, there were other well, and, things and, and, going and, on. And in the book, yeah. I think you... You you do kind of, I think, fall
1: in love with Chez Panisse, but then at the same time, much of the first part of your book is about disassembling that legend because you find really strong examples of this kind of um cuisine yeah
0: and a new type of chef
1: right which is what the book is about yeah you know springing up almost simultaneously
0: in in soho what what was it so yeah food food which was run by artists very similar in some ways it's it's psyche to shape You know, they got cultured butter from Vermont and had, you know, it was a bunch of artists, literally artists. I mean, people who were artists in Soho who opened a restaurant. Bruce Martyr in LA. LA. I mean, uh, Bruce Martyr, who, you know, decides in 1971 on a beach in Morocco that he wants to be a chef. He wasn't influenced by Chez Panisse, he was influenced by LSD, you know, (laughs) and and eating tagines. Um, You know, and and there was a guy I mentioned named Bruce LeFevre who opened a restaurant called The Paragon in Denver, Colorado in 1965, six years prior to Chez Panisse. People need to know this. John Novi, who opened the Dupuis Canal House in uh, upstate New York a little bit before Chez Panisse. So this idea that it all flowed from there is myth. That's myth. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people feel like they need to correct. But what's fascinating is nobody wants to be the one who goes on the record to say that yeah and that is something that i just don't understand i don't understand it i mean jeremiah has done it in a very sort of personal way yeah and alienated i think a lot of people well but, um, you know. but again i want i want to be quick to say what i think um the the weird sort of thing that happens is it's a super important restaurant. Obviously, it's one of the most important restaurants. And it's
1: restaurants. still a very good place to
0: eat. It's great. I ate there while I was researching yeah. my book. I didn't even... they. I didn't know. I haven't met her since. But right. I just made a reservation. Right. I just went and ate there. They didn't know who I was. Yeah. And... and, uh, um, But my point is that um, there was other stuff happening. You know? And, and the larger point of California, to me, is... There is, I think, also this notion that everything started here. <clears throat> now, I think in some ways you can make an argument that most of the food trends began here a, a majority of them okay Along but when it comes to sh- <laughs> but when it comes to chef culture in this country when it comes to a the, the genesis of a chef population completely disconnected no nobody i interviewed and i mean this literally nobody i interviewed uh, from the east coast had their eye in the 70s on california in the 70s. they all had their eye On France. I'm talking about Larry Forgione. I'm talking about David Waltuck and Sean I'm talking about Barry Wine and the Quilted Giraffe. I'm talking about Charlie Palmer at the River Cafe. I'm talking about... um, Well, Alfred spent time here. But I'm talking about that group of people. They were all focused on the French and on Nouvelle Cuisine. That was where their focus was. So I think that's an important distinction. It's hard to understand today with everything being so connected through technology and with the awareness there is now of food, how um, how unconnected or disconnected Ooh. things were back then. You know, there wasn't coverage of chefs. There wasn't that much coverage of food in the beginning of the story. And there wasn't really an awareness of what was happening. You know, I there's a comparison I had in my mind. I ended up not using it because a guy I actually know, <clears throat> our kids went to school together in Brooklyn, Craig Marks, who wrote, I want my MTV. Oh, yeah. Which is a, a fun oral Rob history. Tannenbaum, Yeah. But he uses the same comparison in his book, so I ended up cutting it out of my book. But I came to it independently, was in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's all these people who, they don't know why, but they're all either drawing Devil's Mountain or sculpting it out of mashed potatoes. And then they all sort of come together, you know, at the end. And to me, that's what this movement kind of felt like. There were all these people, there was like a tuning fork that they could hear. And they There's were sort certain, of following that, but they yeah. didn't. They didn't. They were unaware of each other. This is why, you know, it's it's no accident that this book begins. It's not really a spoiler. It's on page one. But with Bruce Martyr, who's still a working right. chef, op chef operator in LA, alone on a beach in a van, having an epiphany, right, right? and ends up more or less in a blue ribbon. Packed with American chefs, right? That to me is what this story is about. You know, all these people who went from isolation right, and, and, and they found each finding other. each other. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I almost called the book "Chef Nation" when I was wondering if that title was going to put people off, um, well, but well, I got talked into keeping it. Thank God. Well, it's
1: <laughs> a book with a, t- a similar title, "United States of mm-hmm. how How is your book?
0: I mean, you must have read it. You must. I have- never read it. Really? No, I read his uh, excerpt about Chez Panisse, which uh, I actually draw from in the okay. book. I always knew I wanted to write some book like this. Yeah. So I always made a point of not reading that book. Interesting. Yeah. But I'll tell you what I did do. I have a copy of that book. And periodically, because that's the book a lot of people bring up, I would look at the index to see... So, for example, this is a book not about food, but about chefs. Yes. So what's my title? Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Right. What's his title? United States of Arugula. About the food. Right? My subtitle, How Food Lovers, Free Spirits, Misfits, and Wanderers Created a New American, not Cuisine, Profession. Right? And his subtitle, I can't... It's like the sun-dried, oh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. For, There's two. The, the first, Right. One was but they're How both. It became a Gourmet Nation. Right, but or, it's all about food. Yes. Right? Mine's about chefs. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, um, So, periodically... I would look at his index, right? So, so, like, I knew I was going to write a lot, a lot about blue ribbon, and I would go look for blue ribbon. I don't even think it's mentioned, right? And I was like, right. perfect, yes, because um, I knew I would get compared well, to it. That's what
1: I felt like in reading this and, and continuing to read it. Um, there, it is—it's like an alternative narrative that you found,
0: or a spin-off,
1: yeah. I guess. Well, I don't know if it's a spin-off. Yeah. it's It's a—you know—you're like, well, this is—you know—how I see this going and how this went and. Probably because you didn't read it, you weren't sort of pulled by the tide into certain directions. You no. just could kind have of followed where
0: your reporting took you. Yeah. I mean, there are certain things I point to in this book. There's a chapter called The French Resistance about the very weird love hate, father son dynamic mm-hmm. between the tri state area kids, you know, who were working for French people in New York and stodging overseas and basically getting treated like crap. And, you know, Andre Saltner, who's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in your life, who was the chef at Lutece, um, you know, he ran what what most people would say was easily one of the three or four best restaurants in the country, right? That's how people felt about it anyway. Okay. Then there was a guy named Jean-Jacques Rassoux, who had Le Cote Basque. Rassoux hired a ton of young Americans. A ton. So in my book, although Saltner comes off as a perfectly nice guy, Rashu is a hero, okay. I've never read that narrative anywhere else. It may be out there no, because in the United States of Rugal, I remember. It, I'm pretty sure that's where
1: I remember the, the Saltner thing. The Saltner is like held up as this like deity. Yeah. This guy who like didn't take a day off for thirty years.
0: Yeah. 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 Or five days off in thirty
1: years yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that. And you and you have you almost do like in your I think in the introduction or something you talk about like almost apologizing or some some Well, the author's it.
0: no no, I yeah. say that because my focus is I it's it's I don't know, Alan, it's a very hard I, for reasons I don't quite understand, it's very hard for me. You know, I have this fantasy that I'll be an old man and I'll be at some conference and there'll be a bunch of people in the audience who are identified as chef writers and not food writers, and they'll thank me for pioneering this category, right? It's this thing I feel like is my own little well, I, thing. I, I have a similar thing because
1: I have profiled chefs. Yes. I, people think I know about food yeah. and everything. I write about all kinds of stuff. Yeah. More, you know, um, and, uh, but what I write about is food media.
0: I don't really yeah, write, about, right, food. Right, write right. about food media. I write about food media. It's different. It's different. And it, people have a hard time grasping that, you know, because it's so easy to call someone a food writer. And then half the people who think you they find out you're a food writer, they assume you're a critic, right? But, and then they want to know where to eat. Right. But, then, <laughs> but what I was going to say was in the author's note, I do say that this book is more concerned with who sort of moved the ball forward. Who were the change agents? Not necessarily who was making the food that was most lionized, right? So while I don't think anybody would put Jean-Jacques Rachu at the same level, I mean, he was highly respected, right, right. at the same level as Saltner from a culinarian standpoint, the love for that guy, it kills me I couldn't get an interview with him. Several people tried. I think he's just a little shy. Mm. Um, uh, I got him on the phone once. He said he would do it, and we never connected. Uh, um, but I feel like I was able to I got enough about him in the book, but he is still beloved by uh, so I mean there was a day for people listening who know these names. If you walked into that prep kitchen when when Lacote Bass first opened in 1980 in the kitchen in the morning singing my girl on the line would be Rick Moonen, Charlie Palmer and Frank Crispo. Okay? Those guys could not get into another French kitchen in New York you know, right. so their love for this guy, and he treated them okay. I mean, he he didn't treat them badly because they were Americans, which happened in a lot of French kitchens back then, because uh, no one respected Americans from a food standpoint. You know, you'd go work in France, and they'd call you chef de hamburger, you know, or at uh, at uh, staff meal, they'd put a bottle of ketchup next to you, or they'd call you Ronald Reagan. You know, these are all real things. That's what happened. People, don't, people may not realize,
1: you know, who aren't in, in the business or something, how... French cooking really is still, in many ways, the essential baseline, the most important thing for most chefs to know to start with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. I mean, but anyway, so that's the distinction for me. So the difference between my book and and David's book, A United States of Arugula... Is this this is the distinction? Is is you know it's 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 a, seems to be a hard point to make to people though. When I first wrote the subtitle of the book, which it was, was like, almost like an intellectual history of chefs, yeah, that? yeah,
1: of American
0: chefs, right? American this chefs. is very, this book is about
1: chefs, drugs, and rock and roll. Andrew Friedman, that's who we're talking to, yeah. by the way. How food lovers, free spirits, misfits, and wanderers
0: created a new American profession. Yeah. That's what it's about. It's about, about? well, when this book opens, when the curtain opens on this story, it was unheard of for an American kid from a quote-unquote good home to turn to their parents one day and say, hey, guys, I want to be a cook. I mean, it was literally almost like coming out. I mean, that's, you know, they freaked out. The parents freaked out. But to this day, I think if you told your parents that
1: you're only going to be a cook and it's not going to lead to a television career, they might not be so happy. Maybe
0: not, but they'd be, yeah, I don't know. Um,
1: who's another character sort of, let's say, in the 80s who
0: you kind of bring forth who people may not have heard of? In the 80s? Uh, I mean, these days, it's hard for me to know who people have heard of. I'm always shocked by who people haven't heard of. Uh, I mean, the number of people who aren't familiar with Berry Wine and the Quilted Giraffe, which was such an important restaurant. A couple of reasons. One is... um, it was the, he was the first American-born chef in Manhattan to ever earn four stars from the New York Times. That was, was huge. At that time? Well, it was Marion Burroughs, but it was upheld years later by Brian Miller. Right. Um, and there's all these people. I always say the two people who I feel the most fierce loyalty to in my interviewing, Barry Wine in New York and Jeremiah Tower in San Francisco from stars. The people who worked for those guys have such reverence for their intellect, for their sense of um, collaboration. There's a story I tell in the book. It's a real important story. I mean, it was just one night of service. Barry gathers everyone around and says, I want to do a dish that's really American. What's really American? And people are kicking around ideas. And a young Tom Colicchio says, how about a clam bake? And Barry goes, yes, yeah, something like that, but not a clam bake on a plate. And they ended up coming up with a di- I don't remember the exact dish, but it was like a lobster ravioli with a, you know, like a bear blanc. And it- so it was like a deconstructed, or mm. I guess I should say a constructed right. clam right, bake, right. right? Translated into like four star New York Times restaurant food. And that kind of creativity and collaboration was amazing. Uh, you know, David Kinch tells a story Uh, where uh, somebody talks about somebody talks about doing something um, in cooking something in duck fat and making Bernays with duck fat, right? And the point David Kinch makes in telling this story is if you had said that in France, the chef would say, shut up, go back to your station, you know, Right. Right. but Barry was like, oh, well, let's try that. And then that became the way they did it, right? right?
1: And in in, in a way, this is what American culture can add to it it wasn't quite as hierarchical right as, as the french kitchen
0: ah uh, i think it ran the gamut but i do think there were kitchens like this where it was like that I, there's a lot of people over the years though who have told me stories they're not all in the book you know alfred portali once told me years ago i wrote all of alfred's books um years ago he, so he trained in france he worked for gerard he worked for trois and then alfred um comes and he eventually does the Gotham bar and grill. And I was with him one day and he was showing me the line and everyone on the line at Gotham was cross-trained, right? Everyone knew how to work every station. Mm. And he told me that the reason for that was when he was in France, if, if say the poissonnier, the fish cook got hit with a million orders, everyone just stood there and watched the guy go down in flames. Mm. Right? So at Gotham, mm. people could pitch in the blood could go, you know, where it was needed. Right, And there's a lot of stories like, you know, I often think that the you, you learn a lot from mentors who sort of show you the right way to do things. But I think just as often in life, in any profession, if you're thoughtful, doing something the opposite of a bad way it was done to you can also be very powerful. Did I let you finish that story or did I cut you off? No, I'm fine. Okay. Yeah. Um,
1: and... Uh... I mean you mentioned Chef Gordon also who I can't you know, you can't resist.
0: Yeah. Did you interview him? You did. Yeah, he was great. You can't trust all his stories. That's the one. No, there's album. not that many crazy stories from that. I I barely had room for him in the book yeah. as it turned out.
1: Great he's, interview. Oh yeah. He he he's the one who uh, well, you can read about Chef. There's even a documentary about him called Supermensch. Uh, yeah, Supermensch. Um I have a lot of things. Where, oh, well, tell me more about your how you got into this business and, and how your what you do what you've done before
0: this. I mean, how I got into this is a long story. The shortest way I can tell it is I was I was trying to be a working a screenwriter a million years ago, uh-huh. came excruciatingly close a few times mm-hmm. to um, getting something set up or at least getting a, we, a huge agent out here in in uh, L.A. <laughs> and uh, i can come back here now it's okay um doesn't hurt too much but um, the irony of that job was i never had time to write because every weekend i had to take home a bag of scripts and read them and um, do what was called coverage reader yeah, yeah. reports of course this is what i'm doing now i like come <laughs> are you come doing on, coverage wait. no no oh. i'm just trying to write script oh, okay writing scripts. script so so i love screenwriting i love the structure of it i, I love everything about it um, so um, we should write a script that we should write a script okay. about the chef world anyway well, I, well I am we'll talk. My people, show. I'll call your people. I am. I'll show you what I got. <laughs> so, something. so, um, but yes, let's collaborate. No. So what, so what happens is, um, I quit the, I quit the job and I didn't know what to do. And literally just out of desperation, I guess, I thought, well, what do writers do? And this was before we had the example of Ken Cosgrove on Mad Men, but I thought, well, I could either be a PR guy or a, an advertising guy. And through the New York Times... I got a job at a PR firm that just happened to be the top restaurant PR firm in New York. It was run by a guy named David Kratz. And there's a lot of people, this is real inside baseball, but a lot of people who have their own agencies now were at that agency. What year is this? Uh, I was there from 93 to 98. Okay. So Philip Baltz, who's now yeah. a PR guy, and uh, Kareem Bakum, and a bunch of other people wow, were there. they all came through? They then. all came, we all worked together. We were all Kim Yorio, yeah. we were all kids together there. We were all there at the same time, oh. and um, Alfred Portali was my client. Um, I was really getting into restaurants, uh, and a lot of, all of a sudden I was getting to be friends with a lot of these chefs, and as what I thought would be sort of a one-time lark, and this is actually another long story in itself, but I'll skip it, I ended up co-authoring the Gotham Bar & cookbook. That was the first thing I ever got paid anything to write. Oh. And that book did great. We won the IACP Award and we were nominated for the Beard Award for Best General Cookbook, shockingly. And I thought, well, you know, I never really wanted to do this kind of writing, but that was kind of fun and maybe it's at least a way to say I'm a writer. So I quit my job and just went looking for projects, initially as a collaborator. Um, And it's, it's taken me years to sort this out, but A, there was, when I was younger, a lot of insecurity, I think, involved. I I don't love being alone. That's a part of writing I've never fully gotten used to. But C, I've realized that the thing I always loved when I would do those cookbooks was the interviewing. I loved writing the autobiographical part at the front of the book. And an opportunity came into my life to pitch a book almost 10 years ago, which ended up being called Knives at Dawn, about the book Who's door competition. Right. And that book was where my life sort of changed. I was watching Tim Hollingsworth, who now has OTM restaurant here in L.A., He was the, he competed for the US. And I was watching him figure out what his platter was gonna be. And I was interviewing him in depth about his life and his, and I realized I was really well suited to that. And that's when I had this epiphany and I went, you know what, this is who I am, you know? Cookbooks are okay, I'm happy to do them occasionally. Um, But I'm really, I love people's stories. I love interviewing them. And, And that's, to me, this book was sort of the next logical extension of that.
1: Um, some of the parts of the book that I like, the, the, the parts that I, and I'm not all the way through it, but some yeah. parts that I like are where you kind of step back and you're here. Like, um, you're going to interview Chef Terrell? Terrell. Patrick Terrell, yeah. Patrick Terai, yeah. And, um, he's the guy that started Ma Maison. He owned Ma Zone, Right. Yeah, where Wolfgang worked before right. Spago. But now he's living in Hogan'sville, Georgia. Yeah. And you, you write, there's a whiff of witness protection about this second act. This still elegant Frenchman, a sore thumb among the polo shirts and strip malls. And then it goes on, as with many homes I visited while writing this book, certain rooms and passageways double as shrines to the owner's glory days, festooned with photographs and framed letters from celebrity clientele. We climb a flight of stairs to his cluttered office and sit, you know, and, and it's, um, you know, there is a feeling of your journey through this material yeah. that, that's fun to go with you. Thank you very much. On the trip. Thank you. And, I, and it's making me think, you know, I wish I had more of this in, in like this sense of like the journey that of, of the unfolding and of the sort of tr- almost. Yes, yeah, some of them have died, but you did capture these people while still alive. Yeah. And it's almost like the epilogue is in your visit to them.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you for that. I'll tell you. You want to know where it came from? Is um, there's a really specific reason it's there? Um, I was having dinner or drinks with a guy uh, who had written a book about an. I, I can I don't even want to indicate who it is, but he'd written a book <laughs> kind of in the same time realm around the time you know that I did this book. And we were talking about research and everything. And I was talking about my compulsion about getting stuff right. And he said, you know, at some point I just realized I am the god of my world, and I'm writing, but, and I thought, no, no, you're not, there is a right and wrong, there is this thing, nothing makes me happier than people coming to me after an article, or a book, and saying, someone who was there, and saying, you know what, you got it, that phrase, it means the world to me, and if I don't hear that, I'm really upset. And I was determined to have people tell me that. Mm-hmm. And I'm very gratified. It's only been out a few days, but people who were in it yeah. have had it about a week. And I've been hearing about it. I haven't had anybody take a crowbar to me yet.
1: Um, okay, the only people who usually... well, so, Sometimes you, as a writer, you don't get it right. You do your best. Yeah. But then also there's certain people who are so...
0: Narcissistic, yes, sure. That they can't bear to see any version. No, I've had people quibble or say, "Oh, why'd you?" But nobody's told me I was wrong. That's great. Which is different. Yeah, 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 right, right. Right. You want to be wrong. But what I was going to say is, I mean, there's some factual errors. It's a 400-something and page book. They'll be fixed on the next printing. But what I was going to say was that moment, and I thought, you know. So these little in, these little bits where I put myself in there, I thought it was important for me to find a way to acknowledge that I was not there for all of this. That this is I have researched it, I have spoken to people, um, but I'm at the mercy of people's versions of events, how things were written, and I've learned that there's certain things. I'll give you a very minor example. Wayne Nish, if you do any research, Wayne Nish was a chef, but he had a place called March years ago. He worked at the Quilted Giraffe once upon a time. Now, if you do any research on Wayne, it will tell you he was a printer, okay? That's not true. He had worked, I think, at a printing place or something, and that had gotten carelessly communicated by in someone in an article and then it got people use that for research so even things that are written and and sourced and listed in the back even those aren't necessarily ironclad i point out in the book there's an event that takes place there's a chapter about a whole chapter about this very famous dinner that happened at the stanford court hotel right is that the california it was no it was an aiwf thing it was the first dinner that American I could Institute find wine and food. American Institute of Wine and Food, Michael McCarty of Michaels had the idea to do a rest a, a dinner to show off what was happening in in American food and wine, and they it was it was the first collaborative dinner, right? All these chefs from around the country came together. They each did a course, but this hadn't happened before. Now that you know tonight, there's probably three of these things. Right. Okay, this was a brand new thing. All the wines were American. I mean, I could say more about this event, but. Um, the larger message is what, how did we start this? Oh, um,
1: why you're there or uh, oh shoot well, it was, we were mostly talking about why you included these personal passages to say that you weren't actually
0: Oh right, so yes so here's the thing that dinner at the after party pizzas from Spago were served now there's a couple I'm not going to name them but there are a few historical accounts out there that say Wolfgang Puck was at the dinner okay Wolfgang Puck was at the opening of Spago Tokyo right okay he wasn't there right now there are reputable books by very responsible yes. people that put him there I don't fault those writers if I hadn't interviewed Mark Peel and he hadn't just volunteered that because it would never would have occurred to me to ask was Wolfgang actually there because it's everywhere that he was but Wolfgang wasn't there and when I interviewed Wolfgang I was able to confirm that okay So I thought it was important to just acknowledge this is all stuff that was in one way or another conveyed to me, you know, and I think most I've done my best to synthesize things and come out where I think the truth was. But, you know, even up to where you've gotten, there's several cases where, you know, there's four different versions of how Ken Frank left Michael's restaurant, who was the original chef. You know, there's four different versions of that story. And if you talk to either of those guys, they're the guys who are on the cover of the book. Um, if you talk to any of them... So what is this picture? The picture on the cover of the book, it's a black and white photograph. That is a pre-opening publicity photograph. It was circulated at the time by a guy with the name Burks Hamner, who did the PR for Michael's. And that was taken out back at Michael's restaurant. And it's Monica. in Santa Monica, the original Michael's, which opened in April 79. And that is Michael McCarty, Ken Frank, who was the original chef, who is now at La Toque in Napa. Mark Peel, who went on to be the chef at Spago under Wolfgang, and then Campanile with his now ex-wife, Nancy Silverton. He and Nancy met at Michael's. And, and the guy, only guy, well, no, there's two guys with a beard. The guy in the back left corner is, most people don't recognize him, but that is a 28-year-old Jonathan Waxman, I, oh yeah, now I can see Who at that. the time was the sous chef, but within a matter of months, Ken Frank left and Jonathan became the chef. And most people think Jonathan was the original chef, but in fact, it was Ken and Ken and Michael did not get along. And there's a lot of history in that picture alone. I could have written a book about that picture yeah. easily. And where those people went, you know, Jonathan. there was a moment in time where I thought, you know, Jonathan came to New York, Mark went back and forth from Chez Panisse, Ken was sort of on his own and, my, you know, there, there was stuff there. Yeah,
1: it is a beautiful picture.
0: Thank you. Know, you. sum it up. Well, from the time I had the idea, that picture was on the front of my book proposal. Right. That was on my blog when I announced that I'd sold the project, and when it came time to do the cover, I I rarely do this. Usually, you've done books. Usually, they come to you with a cover, and you tell them everything you hate about it. Um, they said we're getting ready to design the cover. I said, Oh, the only thing I want in life is for you guys to get Michael McCarty to give you permission. He used the picture, and Michael was super nice about it.
1: Super nice and $10,000 later. He was super nice about it.
0: I don't even know if he... I don't know what happened. I stayed out of it. That's a cover... They, there's Other people who... The it? I don't know if they even paid her. He just gave no. permission, but he let us have it. I had to pay for
1: one picture. I paid for a couple pictures. Yeah. But the one I really had to pay for was this picture of um, Giada De Laurentiis that had run in Food and Wine. That was like the way that she got lost. Yeah. But... Um, so anyway, this is, um, we're going to wrap this up. This is an interview with uh, Andrew Friedman, author of Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. You should definitely pick this up. I think there's a link on the New Books and Food page, which is part of the New Books Network. You should listen to all the great podcasts there. Um, you know, I, I don't want to ask such a lame question, but, you know, your, your guy goes to all these restaurants. And what question am I going to ask you?
0: You're going to ask my favorite restaurant? No. I mean, do you have a favorite restaurant? I always, I always, gonna, I wasn't gonna I always you say it. No, don't. But I'll tell you what I usually answer. But I don't want to go there. Is I usually say, "What's the occasion?" <laughs> right. I don't have just a favorite yeah. restaurant. You're going to a, Are you going alone? Or are you going with your wife? What's last you?
1: meal, I was gonna
0: ask. Oh, last meal.
1: For me, it's like it's a Patagonian lamb, like cooked in, in like Ushuaia. It's the the most pure? Just something
0: that hit me in the bones about it. I would probably, for me, uh, I would probably have a few meals that um, I've never been asked the last meal question. That's so funny. I think I would pick a a couple of things from places that to me signify uh, points in my life. So I grew up with a single working mom. To say food had no place in my life. I mean, half the time we had Wendy's.
1: Well, I think this is why a lot of us are so interested in food, because it was so bad in our childhood. So I might
0: have a Wendy's single. (laughs) Okay. okay. And a Frosty. Uh, Maybe I'd save the Frosty for dessert. Um, uh, Then I'd probably have something from the Gotham Barn Grill. Maybe this pasta that's been retired, this farfalle with prosciutto and pea shoots, because that's where I got my start as a writer. Um, And then probably I'd have something from the Tim Hollingsworth era at the French Laundry, which is when I did Knives at Dawn. And then... Somehow I would time travel and I would maybe go, you know, have a burger and a glass of Lafitte at the bar at Stars, where I never got to eat because, you know, or one would, of the other restaurants in this book. I would love to join you there at Stars. Yeah. that sounds like a But good. I never got to go, you know, there's all these places I feel like I've been yeah. now, but I was never there. So that's why I probably put together some crazy, this is your life tasting menu.
1: Well, your book does definitely take you there, so you Thank succeeded. You. Thank, Thank you, you very you so much. much for this time. And uh, listen to the next episode. There's other people doing interviews on new books and food. Um, until next time, I'm Alan Salkin. Bye.